0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: There's a lot to think about if you want to start a family. Finding the right partner, financial security, juggling your job with childcare. Some people tick all the boxes and then run up against what they couldn't plan for, infertility. We now talk openly about fertility problems, stories about women and biological clocks and IVF, but we don't hear as much about the men in the equation. I'm Paul Barclay, and in this Big Ideas, our specialists talk about male fertility and what a man can do to give himself the best chance of becoming a father. And just to give you the heads up on some of the jargon, EDCs are endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and ICSI is the process of injecting a sperm into the centre of a human egg, ICSI Intracytoplasmic Sperm Injection. This discussion comes from the University of Melbourne, hosted by Professor Moira O'Brien, a fertility expert and Dean of Science.
0: Before I introduce the panel, I have five tidbits about male fertility that you may not know and may prime a few questions in your mind. The first is that male sub or infertility is very common. It affects one in 20 Australian men of reproductive age, and it is a major component of the assisted reproductive technologies industry. Secondly, there is compelling data to indicate that infertile men as a group carry a higher disease burden and die younger than fertile men. This is referred to as male infertility being the canary in the coal mine of health hypothesis. Thirdly, a large portion of male infertility cases will have a genetic element and it is possible to inherit infertility. Fourthly, male fertility like many aspects of health is affected by lifestyle and environmental factors. And we are exposed to some of these factors on a daily basis. Fifthly, male fertility is about much more than a cell delivering just DNA to an egg and the health of the father and subtle changes in semen quality can have long term consequences for child health. So now over to our panel. Our first panel member is Professor David Gardner. David is the Head of the Reproductive Biology and Assisted Conception Laboratory here at the University of Melbourne. Next, we have Professor Sarah Robertson. Sarah is a Professor of Reproductive Immunity and a National Health and Medical Research Council Investigator Fellow at the Robinson Institute at the University of Adelaide. Thirdly, We have one of our rising stars of reproductive biology here at the University of Melbourne, Dr. Deirdre Matyski. Deirdre is a John McKenzie fellow within the School of Biosciences. Our first question, however, is for you, David. It's a big one. Is male fertility declining?
2: The answer is sadly yes. Um, Over the past 50 years, sperm counts worldwide have dropped what can only be described as alarmingly between 1973 and 2011, it's estimated it was a 50 to 60% drop in sperm counts. And that's in men from Europe, the USA, Australia, and New Zealand. And perhaps what's really alarming as well, it's not that we've got less sperm, but the quality of the sperm has decreased as well. So whatever sperm we have left, they're not as good as they used to be. Now, although the data sets... To get that kind of information, we've all been retrospective, they, they're all consistent in their finding. Uh, sperm counts are changing, trending negatively. And as you said, more it's one in 20 men are now facing reduced fertility. It's a staggering concept. So next time you're at the MCG, look around, and one in 20 men are struggling with that. And I think what you also said, and to me has always been alarming, is that sperm quality and quantity are directly linked to morbidity and mortality. So basically, semen quality of a man um, and your your fertility status appears to be really the biomarker of men's health and really could be used for early warnings for development of subsequent health problems and disease. In the 1990s, I, I started to use a phrase that infertility is the silent sickness in our society. And I came to that is because I was aware when I was talking to patients that there really was a reluctance in people to talk about it, but not so with women. They were very good at discussing their problems with other women, their friends. Where it was really a problem was with with the men. And that was really difficult for them to talk about their fertility or infertility with, with other men. And as a result of which, they tended to suffer in silence and alone. And that led to even more stress. And one of the discussion points we'll probably come back to is that stress in itself is a huge contributing factor to fertility and indeed the health of subsequent children.
0: Deirdre, so as David mentioned, there is very compelling data to suggest that sperm counts have been declining. So we know that this decline is occurring so quickly that certainly it can't be accounted for solely by genetics. So, what do we know about the role of environmental factors in this decline and in male infertility broadly
3: we've really seen this shift in fertility and in the incidence of of multiple reproductive disorders over the last couple of decades and it's really this this change in incidence that that lets us know that it can't be genetics alone that this is happening too quickly just to be changes in in genetics within a population so there has to be some kind of an environmental factor involved we know that there is a lot of different lifestyle choices that affect male fertility. So things like um, like diet, smoking, even things like stress and sleep patterns can really affect fertility. But one of the big hitters that uh, we've been researching in the last couple of decades are these so-called endocrine disrupting chemicals. So these are simply substances that have the potential to interfere with the normal hormonal signaling within an individual and really impact their reproductive health and their fertility. And when we talk about EDCs, these aren't uh, simply chemicals that we find in an industrial setting, for instance. These are substances that, that most of us are exposed to every single day. So a lot of people on this call will be familiar with things such as BPA and phthalates, So these are simply plasticizers. They're what makes plastic soft, and they're found in a huge range of items. They're found in children's plastic toys. They're found in plastic bottles that we drink from. Uh, They're found in food packaging, cleaning products, even those thermal receipts, those semi-glossy receipts that we get. They're coated in BPA. Pesticides and herbicides contain uh, a large number of EDCs, so a lot of commercial food crops um, will be treated with, with EDCs that then become contaminated in both our food and water. Um, parabens is another big one. So these are found in personal care products. So things like cosmetics, skincare products, shampoos and conditioners, um, they all contain parabens. There was a, a Queensland study done in 2020 that looked at the number of phthalate metabolites found in the individual in individuals' bodies. And they found that on average in Australia an individual contains up to 14 metabolites of phthalates. And that the the members of the population that contain the most number of phthalates are in the under 40s in both men and women. And that's that's peak reproductive fitness. That's when people are starting to think about their fertility and really uh, looking at starting a family. And that's when we see a huge concentration of these EDCs. So we know that we have this almost ubiquitous exposure that all of us are exposed on a day-to-day level to a wide range of these EDCs. And we know that they have a wide range of effects. They don't only affect our reproductive health, they affect um, and cause things like metabolic disease, they contribute to obesity, cardiovascular disease. Um, But of course, tonight we're focused on male reproductive health. And we know that EDCs can mimic or can block um, the male hormones and have a direct-to-health direct effect on male reproductive health, and specifically on on development of the sperm. And what's also concerning is we know that uh, many of these impacts can in fact be passed on to future generations. So exposure to EDCs is not only affecting the individual themselves, but also has the potential for these impacts to be inherited in their children and in their grandchildren. So it's really important that we understand the the impacts of EDCs and that we're trying to figure out ways to minimise exposure, not only for for males now but for future generations.
0: Deidre, how definitive is this data and how do we help industry transition away from these damaging chemicals?
3: It's a huge question. So the data is very definitive and it comes from... A range of different research, if you like. So I'm a a developmental biologist. I'm a reproductive developmental biologist. So I'm interested in what happens as an individual is developing, as the reproductive system is maturing. Um, But there's also toxicologists, people who look very specifically at, at how these EDCs affect cells, at what they're doing in the body. There's also epidemiologists, so people who look at a much broader scale. So they're looking to see... Uh, If there's population differences, if there's geographical differences, we can see occupational exposures that really link uh, exposure to particular EDCs to then uh, changes in fertility. So there's a wealth of different um, evidence, if you like, from research studies that all point to this link between EDCs and fertility and reproductive issues. And I think to move this field forward, we really need to all come together with this research to help paint that bigger picture, to then be able to advise regulatory bodies to say exactly what we see is happening with EDCs and how we can really minimise uh, and set guidelines around use of these, these substances. Sarah, so male infertility, it's
0: not just about sperm. What can you tell us about that?
4: Well, Moira, really interestingly... Uh, There's a big misconception out there. People think, and I guess have done for a long time, that it's just that single sperm that fertilizes the egg that's important for fertility and for the health of the child. But it turns out that seminal fluid has other functions. And indeed, that the plasma fraction, in particular of the seminal fluid it's called, it's the material that the sperm is bathed in, that's produced by the prostate and the seminal vesicle glands of the male is really important. And that material is really important because it supports the survival and the delivery of the sperm into the female reproductive tract at ejaculation. But it also communicates with the female reproductive tissues to boost the chances of the female accepting a pregnancy with that male. And we and others around the world have discovered this remarkable effect in just the last 10 or 15 years or so, it's become increasingly evident that this is a key part of human fertility as well. So it's really important in sort of negotiating the compatibility, if you like, between the female and her her male partner. And couples who are experiencing infertility often say, Is there something wrong with my immune response? Maybe we're just incompatible. Well, a fair bit of that is explained by this communication that's carried by the male seminal fluid. And it has a job of sort of persuading and convincing the female immune response that, that she should accept that sperm and fertilize her egg and um, allow an embryo to implant. And it turns out that that aspect of male fertility and those components of the seminal fluid are similarly affected to many of these environmental factors that deirdre has been talking about. And we know that exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals, for example, um, also changes in the metabolic status of uh, males. And for example, um, exposure to a high fat diet or cigarette smoke or um, altered stress and exercise all have capacity to affect the way these other male tissues work and that changes the composition of the seminal plasma fraction and the ability of, of that communication to occur so we can do really interesting experiments we use mouse models a lot because of course it's much easier to manipulate than in humans And what we find is if this signalling ability is missing, it has a substantial effect on fertility, but it also has an impact on the offspring. So we showed that the sons of males that are uh, conceived in the absence of this correct signalling have poorer health prospects when they're born and they have increased chance of central adiposity and obesity and metabolic dysfunction when they're older. So those experiments were done in mice, but there's every reason to think. And in fact, we know the same systems are working in the human. So, you know, we're really concerned that this is part of um, this rising problem with male infertility and may um, explain a degree of so-called unexplained infertility when we can't quite pin down a cause in either the male or the female partner, you know, that something's going wrong with this this sort of immunological communication that's happening.
0: Is there a way to manipulate these properties, if you like, to actually improve fertility?
4: Well, that's the, the dream, isn't it? So, you know, we're very keen to identify and understand the molecular pathways by which this occurs. We have some knowledge about the components of seminal plasma that are really important. Uh, One of them is called TGF beta, it's a a really important immune regulatory molecule and it has a job of convincing the immune system to become tolerant. So one of the things we can do is, um, you know, develop new diagnostic approaches to measure these components and ultimately what we'd like to do is to uh, develop I guess, are the ways of improving the, the health status of men so that they make their own signalling agents in the inappropriate levels. And obviously that's the better therapeutic approach always. But in the event where that's not possible or where we're trying to sort of recapitulate this communication, for example, for single-sex uh, people who are having children, you know, then there are other approaches. And um, identifying the molecules and developing new sort of pessaries or other approaches to deliver them to the female reproductive tract is one of the things that we're working on.
1: This discussion on male fertility comes from the University of Melbourne with Professor Sarah Robertson, Dr Deirdre Matiski, Professor David Gardner and host Professor Moira O'Brien.
0: Let's move on to our audience questions. Our first one is for David. And it is prompted by an email from Carolyn Ladowski from the University of Technology in Sydney. Carolyn is interested in how male infer- infertility is currently diagnosed and what are the barriers to adopting new diagnostic or treatment strategies?
2: It's um, been 42 years since the birth of the first test tube baby. And in that time, they've seen rapid advances in embryology and endocrinology. And when we look at the analysis on diagnosis of male infertility, it's kind of not progressed that far. And so what would happen is if you think you're infertile and you go to the specialist, you will be asked some questions about your reproductive history, whether you fathered previous pregnancies, um, sexual interactions, frequency of intercourse, things like that. How long it's been since uh, you think you're infertile? Have you had surgeries? all kinds of questions about your um, drug exposure, environmental conditions, temperature, all kinds of things like that. And then um, a sperm sample will be collected and we'll do an analysis. And we will still look at the same parameters today as we pretty much did 42 years ago. And that's the volume of the ejaculate. What's the sperm concentration, which we talked about earlier on is sadly declining. So we'd have the total count of the sperm. If they're motile, can they swim? Because if they can't swim, we can diagnose some problems. And their morphology, how do they look? And based on that, make a decision whether we could go ahead if there were normal parameters, we would look and say, well, perhaps we can do an interuterine insemination. And if that doesn't work, we'll probably go to in vitro fertilization. And that in itself can be diagnostic. And indeed, if if the sperm is really not of a, a sufficient quality as defined by WHO parameters, then we probably go to intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which basically an immotile or poor quality sperm is picked up in a glass needle and put into the egg directly. But that's not a treatment. I mean, it's, a, it's not a therapy for male infertility. It's basically sidetracking the problem and putting the onus on the woman who has to go through rounds and rounds of hormone injections so we can collect her eggs. And we simply sidestep the problem. We've not not addressed the problem of male infertility. And indeed, as you alluded to, um, that can be passed on to the children. So the fact that you've had ICSI, uh, some of your children will probably be infertile as well. So those are the problems. So with regards to new diagnostics, okay. So I'm happy to say that right now, we're seeing a resurgence of interest in new diagnostic tests and what we can do. One of them, which I've had a personal interest in for maybe 20 years now, is DNA damage in sperm. We know that as we get older, the damage to our sperm increases, and that can be a whole myriad of reasons why. It could be exposure to the endocrine disrupting chemicals that Deirdre talked about. It could be the fact that if your occupation, whatever that exposes you to, accumulated what we call oxidative damage, As we get older, um, we acquire this oxidative injury, basically through metabolic use of oxygen. And so that causes all kinds of problems. Um, And we noticed 20 years ago, we first published a paper on it that patients with a high level of sperm DNA damage really didn't produce very nice embryos and they had lower pregnancy rates. And so we've been interested in this for a long time. So taking it to the level, it's one point to have a diagnostic and that's great, But what do you do with that information? How do we then treat the male? What can we do? And that's the real challenge. Mm -hmm. With regard to say with a population of sperm with a high DNA damage, well, there are various new and exciting procedures that we can use that are based in microfluidics that can help to enhance a population of genetically normal sperm. So that's more of a selection system, but it seems to work pretty well. But it really gets interesting because, uh, you know, when we start talking about other matters such as epigenetics, um, we've talked about DNA damage, but rather more in a way sinister is this thing called epigenetics, which basically literally means epi above the gene. And it's how um, various environmental factors or your diet uh, can indeed change patterns of gene expression, especially in your germ cells. And so this is a really interesting area altogether because we know that what we call methylation, which is one of the mechanisms of epigenetics to silence and repress gene expression, uh, is, is very important, and certainly in sperm. And sperm DNA methylation patterns have recently been shown to predict paternal age, for example, because we can we can relate that. We also know that environmental factors such as smoking can alter DNA patterns. So um a lot of interest now is turning into how do we look for DNA damage and there are various technologies that we can do, but it comes back what can we do for those patients once you've made that kind of diagnosis, what kind of interventions, and that is going to be the real challenge.
0: Thank you, David. Over to our next question, which is from Emeldo, and it is for you, Deirdre. Can food choices impact male fertility? We can interpret food broadly. Are there certain food choices that can help increase fertility in men?
3: Food and diet is one of those lifestyle factors that we know does have an impact on fertility. And and not surprisingly, it's it's simple things like having a fresh fruit and vegetable diet will always um, help health in general and also in reproductive health. So in terms of EDCs, the advice is to... Minimize your your consumption of processed foods. So anything that's highly processed and packaged will increase your exposure to EDCs. Also, shopping organically, looking for things that have had minimal exposure to, to pesticides, to herbicides. Simple things like steering away from plastics and when you're heating food, don't heat in plastic because that is an optimal way to increase your EDC exposure we all know that plastics are terrible for the environment anyway so this is another great reason to steer away from plastics so yeah where where possible go for those healthy alternatives and minimise all those processed foods
4: sarah question i, I was just going to add to that um because there are some simple things that people can do uh, to minimize their edc exposure and i think the the food is the big one and deirdre's answered that beautifully but the other one that's really tractable is about cosmetics. And, you know, I guess in our modern society, men also use fragrances and deodorant and, you know, might use skin products and things. And many of these contain phthalates, which make those products so soft and feel so nice on our skin. But, and and the phthalates are really important for carrying the fragrance in, in the product. But I think if I was planning to be coming pregnant in the next year or so, I'd be choosing products that are phthalate free. And one of the ways you can find them is that they're labeled as fragrance free. In some countries, there's better labeling and we're able to actually look at the chemical composition of products. But a good trick is to to look for the fragrance free products because that Uh, You can imagine if you slather stuff on your skin every day when you get out of the shower and, you know, that's got 1% phthalates in it, you know, that's a pretty good way of getting Mm -hmm. exposed. And so minimising that exposure route is is another way that people can improve. And also not handling the the checkout paper, you know, that you get at the supermarket or at the shop when you uh, wave your credit card. They ask, do you want a receipt? And you say, yes, I'd like a receipt. Those receipts... And Deirdre can correct me, I think it's BPAs that they're right.
2: really high in. Well, while we're talking yes. about food in particular though, I mean, Deirdre hit the nail on the head, You know, stay away from processed foods. One of our huge interests in, in, in infertility and in, in, in our research is antioxidants. And so really, you know, I I talked about this oxidative damage earlier that's a problem that accrues with age. It's one of the cruel reasons we kind of wrinkle up over time. But a a diet that's rich in antioxidants has really been shown to be beneficial, not only to you as an individual, but to your germ cells. And there's some nice studies coming out on, on different types of diet and their impact. And this is a this is really novel field uh, that we've been working in for a few years now. And it's a bit of a tongue twister, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's called metaboloepigenetics. And what that really means is linking metabolism to epigenetics, which I just talked about, which was how genes are regulated. And it's really the understanding that food nutrients um, are really can be very bioactive. So Hippocrates got it right, you know, let thy medicine be thy food. Um, it, it's so true and so what's good for you in that regard is also very very good for your germ cells and the the counter side of that is of course that sarah's already alluded to is if you become obese and there's so much data both on maternal obesity and paternal obesity that the germ cells are compromised the eggs and the sperm become compromised and then we see altered development in the embryo subsequently altered development in the fetus and then that's passed on through generations so, yes, diet should be taken very seriously indeed to look after your healthy sperm.
0: So, Rob, I think we have comprehensively answered the question I was going to ask for you. So we'll move on. And um, this one is from, and I apologise in advance for the pronunciation, Dr. Atanga Noachiyo from the Institute for Primate Research in Kenya, which is where one of the students I used to work with, Alma works, so a shout out to everyone in Kenya. This is a big question that I'm throwing out to whoever wants to grab it. Is there any link between male fertility or male infertility and global warming climate change? What's the trend like? Are the causes of male infertility increasing or decreasing over time because of climate change?
2: Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I think David de many years ago did some very elegant work on scrotal testis temperature and you know that really certain occupations uh, like drivers truck drivers long distance time in a car where your gentlemen as your testicles are cramped into your body they they have a chronic exposure to elevated temperature sitting on those seats and and that was associated with a decline in sperm number and quality so david very cleverly came up with sort of these um, cooler underwear literally with a, a cool lining to insulate your testicles from the heat and that that, that was very Pragmatic. Whether actually global warming is affecting the scrotal testis temperature, I I really don't think that would be a case. No, I I don't think it is.
4: Um, One of the things that global warming is doing is affecting our exposure to viruses and different infectious agents. And we've seen, um, for example, with Zika virus recently and now with the encephalitis virus that's um, born by mosquitoes moving into the more southern parts of Australia. With both Zika virus and particularly also with COVID, there's a major problem uh, for men and their fertility. And I think that this has been not discussed as widely as it should be because it's not just during the actual acute phase of the infection that men's fertility is impacted by these viruses, but there can be ongoing impacts. And in fact, it's been described in some of the scientific papers that the testes act as a reservoir, a place that the virus, the COVID virus gets sequestered and continue to sort of hide, um, you know, for some weeks at least and possibly months in some men. So, This is going to have an ongoing impact on the way testicular function and sperm production operates. And it's another good reason to do your best to avoid the dreaded COVID. Make sure that you recover well when you do.
0: So we're going to get this really important question out of the way. Do vaccines make men infertile?
4: Absolutely not. (laughs) Having a vaccine against COVID (laughs) and against any uh, of these other important Infectious agents is the best thing you can do for your fertility, whether you're a man or a woman, indeed. There is absolutely no reason at all to suspect. And we have huge amounts of data now in from all around the world showing that there is absolutely no adverse impact on fertility in men or women. And indeed, conception and pregnancy outcomes are improved in those couples who are vaccinated because the chances of infection, especially in women in pregnancy, you know, and the impact of that on a baby is, is really bad. So if you want to have a healthy child and you, you want to uh, conceive a pregnancy in the next short while, make sure your vaccines are up to date and that's your, your best way of avoiding any impact.
1: Sarah Robertson, Professor of Reproductive Immunology at the University of Adelaide. And from the University of Melbourne, the other speakers are Professor David Gardner. Head of Reproductive Biology and Assisted Conception Laboratories. Dr. Deidre Matiski, Research Fellow in the School of Biosciences, and host, Professor Moira O'Brien, Dean of the Faculty of Science.
0: David, another question for you. Is there a link between low testosterone and low sperm counts or quality, and is testosterone levels declining at the same rate as sperm counts? That's
2: a very good question. I do believe there is a link between the two. But whether testosterone is, is actually decreasing, I haven't seen any data to support that. So I think the endocrine function of men hasn't really changed. It's something else that's playing in over the last 50 years of this dramatic decline in our sperm count. And I think, uh, as, as Maurice said, it's not genetics because it's happening too quick. It's It doesn't seem to be endocrinological. So the smoking gun is, as has already pointed out, is environmental agents. I think it's also a huge change in our diet. I think it's also lifestyle. That's a huge thing. You know, we there's this saying, you know, be fit for fertility, and we're seeing a, a tremendous shift in the demographics in terms of weight distribution and BMIs. So all of these things are playing in, and of course, to make matters worse. We're waiting, we're getting older before we become parents. But there's another facet of this is that we've talked about these things in isolation, but here's the sinister thing. Nothing in life works in isolation, right? So if you have a stress in your system and then a second stress comes along, the chances are it's not additive, but it multiplies the problem. And I think this is really what we're faced. We're not faced with just one thing. It's not just endocrine disruptors. It's not just the climate. It's not just the food. It's not just our lifestyles. It's not just our age. It's smoking. It's the sinister combination of all of the above. I think that's really things. And indeed, you know, there, there was a paper came out I just saw this week, uh, came out of Europe, uh, whereby the administration of metformin, for diabetics and pre diabetics, we're taking metformin. Well, that has a huge problem in the offspring, in their children. So, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that play into this. And I think, like with any struggle that we have biologically, the fitter you are, the better able you are to resist the stress. Uh, but as soon as your body starts to accumulate this, then you really have a problem.
3: I think that's a really good point, David, and I think that that also plays into discussions in EDCs and a lot of times people will criticise EDC research and say that, you know, we're exposed to very low levels and they're not causing complete infertility they're causing Mm -hmm. a reduction in infertility and it is this combination of factors not even you know the combination of EDCs that we're exposed to but a combination of all the things that you have mentioned like lifestyle factors that really all work together Mm -hmm. to to cause this change in fertility.
0: Theidra a question on uh, EDCs from way, what is the rate of decay in EDC concentrations in the human system do do they accumulate quickly and can they leave the system quickly
3: EDCs are so different and what makes them so interesting to study from my point of view as well so some EDCs can clear the system very quickly within a couple of days Other EDCs can take a lot longer and there's something called dioxins, which are one of the the longest, most toxic chemicals I think that um, is a man-made chemical. That can take 7 to 12 years as a half-life. So half of it is gone from the system in about 10 years. So there is a huge range um, of how it clears the body and also how um, EDCs remain in the environment. So we've talked about how you can often find EDCs in water so something like atrazine, which uh, is used in agriculture in Australia, that's still found within our water supplies. So it's the accumulation of all these things that that has this effect.
0: The um, I have a friend who works in Canada that she works on endocrine disrupting chemicals and, of course, these chemicals also accumulate in wildlife. And, and one of the jobs she used to have is that when a whale or a, a, a narwhal would rush up onto the beach, they bioaccumulate. I mean, they're quite insulated animals. And they would accumulate EDCs in their um, their fat deposits. And they would be treated as toxic waste because of the concentrations that were actually in their fat deposits. So it's not just something that affects humans. Our next question is um, from Anya. Uh, Could you provide further details on the negative outcomes on offspring of DNA damage for older sperm providers? For example, is there evidence for mental health outcomes for offspring, David?
2: Yeah, there are. There's a growing number of studies that have looked at increased DNA damage and mutation rate in older men, and they certainly augment the risk of complex diseases. Um, So there's growing data on schizophrenia, autism, and indeed even childhood cancer. So these studies are very sobering to read, but the data is growing, there's no doubt about that.
0: Right, Yari, let's move on to the next question, which is from Almas. Um, can you please elaborate on the use of antioxidant therapies to reverse DNA damage in germ cells? I have heard that IVF clinics are prescribing these to men with abnormal sperm parameters. David, I think that's another one
2: for you. Okay, I'll take that one. Yeah, there are IVF clinics. I mean, several clinics around the world have developed over the years, specific antioxidant supplements, which they put their patients on, and they seem to have some benefit. And I think the jury's overall still out. We're waiting for larger controlled studies to really get the the exact data. But one of the interesting things about antioxidants, if you take too much, they become pro-oxidants. So it's a cash 22 You can take something that's really good for you, but if you overdo it, it becomes bad for you. So if you've got someone like Deirdre sat down and talked to some male friends and convinced them to get on a really healthy diet, and that's great, and they've got tons of antioxidants in their diet, and then they come. And unless you address how what their antioxidant status is, and then you, you prescribe more antioxidants, it's actually potentially not a good thing. Uh, but overall, we know from in vitro studies and I'll say that again, from, from working in a laboratory, working on sperm or eggs or embryos, we know that adding antioxidants actually has a beneficial effects and protects them in the laboratory. The big challenge is, does that translate to a patient who's not going to IVF? And can we, can we monitor their oxidative state sufficiently so we don't do more harm than good? I wish I had a definitive answer for you on that. I'm still trying to get there, but overall, antioxidants are great, but consume them in your diet. I think that's my that's the take home.
0: Okay, question uh, from Eddie: When do we think we'll get to the point where male infertility is treated in the male rather than relying on IVF or treatments
4: that impact females to conceive a child? sarah wow thanks that's a tricky one isn't it because it relates to so many bigger cultural and societal and even political things that mean that men are sometimes a bit hard to convince to engage with taking care of their health in the right way and when it comes to reproductive health in men i think that's often even the hardest one because, you know, it carries with it issues of stigma and shame. So what we have to do is change the conversation about this and we have to make it a much more common and happy thing to do, to be able to talk about how we're taking care of our testes in the same way as we go to the dentist and take care of our teeth. And I think once that conversation starts to come out in the open and we go to Saturday afternoon or night barbecues and we hear the guys talking about their sperm counts, you know, that's where um, it's going to be much easier for people to access the more preventative and earlier stage sort of interventions that they can, you know, take responsibility for to keep their reproductive health tippy top right from the beginning, Having the right diet, going to the gym, not becoming overweight, you know, not having exposures to workplace chemicals and understanding the impact of age and uh, exposures and managing those things. I think it will be part of the future, but it is going to take a sort of collective effort for men to learn to feel more comfortable talking about these things. And I think that the place to start is always to collect the evidence and to assemble the numbers and get the data down and get it explained in a way that people are able to understand and able to then act upon. The gender bias here is in two directions. One is
0: because of the current absence of knowledge that women often carry a medical burden because of male infertility. But on the other side, we have biased against men in identifying what the causes of infertility are. So we know from lots and lots of studies that most men really want to be involved in managing reproductive health. Now that might be in conceiving children or equally in carrying the contraceptive load. But as a society, industry, uh, for, as you are saying, all sorts of complicated reasons, we haven't made the investment to allow them to take as much a role as they want to. So I, I'm always you know, a little bit careful about making it sound as though it's one gender carrying a burden from the other. It's, it's a very complicated
4: uh, equation.
0: I think, too, when
4: men realise the benefit that they can deliver to their children if they are able to engage with taking care of their reproductive health and how that can be a mechanism that they can have the healthier, smarter, longer-lived sons and daughters... That's another motivating force. So all of the things that you discuss, Moira, and uh, yeah, getting the message out there, I think, gives us a, a hopeful future.
2: <laughs> I think we have to go before men. I think we have to go to the teenage years. I think that's when education really has to start. And somehow in our wonderful health service, when you go for your annual checkup, which men don't do, when we get to that level where men are comfortable doing their annual checkups, there's also a semen analysis. You know, that is everything we've said in the last part of this discussion, how everything's sort of linked and it all comes down to the as it were. If you could have a semen analysis, that would give you great, not total control, but a great insight into into where you were and and what you should be doing.
0: And to get to a point where that's not embarrassing. That's normal. Exactly,
2: exactly. But we will also get to a point, and Moira, I turn to you on this one, that not all sperm are destined to be able to conceive naturally. You know, when we have these various abnormal forms, sperm that just can't swim, sperm that have an abnormal head, which means they can't actually bind to the egg when they get there. They haven't got the right machinery to do it. They do have the DNA, but just the beautiful machinery that is the sperm, which is designed just to swim, you know, and, and get to that egg can sometimes fail. That's where things like intracytoplasmic sperm injection foreseeably will have a role.
0: Yeah. I have a question from our from Mick McCarthy. I'm hoping it's an easy one, but it might not be. It's for you, Deirdre. Are phytoestrogens in food like soy a concern?
3: Mm, that's a very good question. So it's a very interesting field of research. So, yes, we know that soy has a really high level of phytoestrogens and there has been a lot of research looking at the impact of this particularly on reproductive development and on the incidence of reproductive disorders. And there's a lot of studies that suggest that pregnant women with vegetarian diets do have sons with an increase in a variety of reproductive disorders. The jury is still out on a lot of this data. So it's quite, as we've mentioned before, there's so many tangled elements in there so it's very hard to tease these things out and it's actually one of the questions that i'm really interested in looking at in my research so we're doing exactly that we're looking at directly looking at the impacts of what's um called genistein which is the phytoestrogen that's found in soy. what directly is the impact of exposure to that on the male reproductive system so absolutely watch the space hopefully mm-hmm. we'll have an answer
0: i feel as if for this question i should give a disclaimer you yeah, know no advice is specific please go and you know see your medical <laughs> practitioner for specific advice
3: yeah that's absolutely right and i think that's a, a worthwhile point in mentioning too when we're talking about awareness and men arming themselves with knowledge that these conversations are so important to to normalize these discussions and then to open up these conversations so that that young men are familiar with all these different factors and can go to their GP and raise these concerns and just ask these questions. I think that's an excellent point. Mm. Another one in the same vein, which is from Anonymous. So women
0: can freeze their eggs. Are the age effects on the quality of sperm significant enough that men should consider freezing their sperm when they are younger and healthier? David? Yes,
2: I think there's a strong case for that. Having said that, if you know you've got good sperm as a teenager, early 20s, and you take care of yourself, then you really don't have the concerns. But if you plan to have a debauched lifestyle, become obese, you know, use, use drugs, whatever it is, then, you know, perhaps you want to reconsider that. Uh, the other challenge, of course, is that you think, you know, like there's there's many examples of elderly men fathering children into their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. But I've come back to the fact that how normal are those sperm and how safe is it to conceive later on? So sperm banking is, you know, women have social egg freezing for the reason that they haven't found a partner and they want to preserve their fertility status by having those younger eggs maintained for them later on. And so it's not too big a leap of faith to say, well, why aren't we doing it as men?
0: I must say, this is not a linear equation, though, because, of course, if you are, we know that freezing does compromise sperm function and if it's associated then with having to do other interventions to overcome that uh, quality of sperm, of course, you've then got to consider that, so um, I don't think any of us is suggesting this should be wholesale.
2: Absolutely not, but I think it's something that you can have in the back of your mind and it comes down to awareness. And I think once you realise that that is an alternative, for you, obviously, if you if you're a cancer patient before chemo, you would go and freeze your sperm. Yeah. But realistically, you know, it's there. Yep. Good to do.
0: So the next question, I actually, I'm going to take: Is it possible to screen infertile men for expression or mutations in a subset of genes associated with male infertility parameters? Uh, is this being done in Australia? So. In our conversation, I suspect we are sounding really rather negative. There are massive opportunities in what Deirdre is saying, and that if we can identify the problems, we can actually do something about it. Currently, um, genetic causes of male infertility, there are some done. We look for deletions on the Y chromosome, we look at carrier types. As David was saying, this really hasn't changed very much in the last several decades. But we know in other diseases, and male infertility is a disease in the same way that you know, um, you know, heart disease is or kidney diseases. That if we treat it that way, we know that there are genetic causes of infertility. Okay, we have to identify what those genetic causes are. But the technologies to detect such changes already exists. We can, um, the government could choose to, start doing whole exome sequencing as a diagnostic strategy to identify what are precise causes of infertility. And we had that question from Carolyn early on about genes involved in in methylation, where we know that some men metabolise methyl donors differently. So if we knew that uh, an individual had a mutation in a gene that affected that, we might be able to say, hey, change your diet here, this might help. Or we may identify uh, changes in genes that actually we can't do anything about. So let's go straight to intracytoplasmic sperm injection to, you know, in the hope of achieving a pregnancy in the first round of uh, treatment rather than round four or, or something, So the more we know about the causes of infertility, some of them we can do something about. And I hope that as we start unpicking the causes of infertility, this will prompt uh, pharmaceutical companies to start developing rational strategies. You know, how can I boost the motility of individual sperm so they can achieve fertility on their own? Um, so, the question, yeah, the end of the question was, is this happening in Australia? It's not yet. And I think, in fact, it's not happening anywhere in the world yet. But the data around it is accumulating very, very quickly. And while people used to say, let's sequence these 10 genes and see what we find, DNA sequencing technology is, no, no, but sequence them all and pull the data out from the genes you know are important. So I think if we can, you know, that is a transition that will have a big effect on the assisted reproductive technology industry, but we're not there yet. So to paraphrase a question from James, and this will go right back to something that David said early on, he asks if there are other things that we can do to improve Reproductive health. He he asked about acupuncture, but I want to come back to the role of stress yeah, in malfertility.
2: Yeah. Stress is a terrible thing both for you as an individual, but it turns out it can actually damage your sperm. And there's there's growing work now, very elegant work, looking at the effects of administering various types of sperm, whether it's through giving animal models um cortisol or actually stressing them. Uh, by removing them from their mother, and the sperm changed their patterns of methylation. And that is inherited into the offspring. So the offspring of these these mice that can be stressed are actually epigenetically different because their parents, their father, was stressed either chemically through cortisol, which is your stress response hormone, or through anxiety because they were separated from their mother. That is staggering. So uh, I think, you know, Anything that can help you relax, have a calm life, whether it's (laughs) acupuncture, meditation, whatever it is, uh, I think actually, yes, it has a fighting chance to help maintain a normal methylation pattern on your spoon.
4: You know, I think most people agree that a certain level of stress humans are built to cope with. And especially in modern society it's almost impossible to live without any stress but, but it's when that stress goes into distress and it's constant and it's really high level that's where you know these impacts manifest
0: early on it was stated that sperm counts has declined by up to 60 percent over the last few decades and so does the data suggest that the rate of decline is continuing at the same rate is it slowing down or are things improving?
2: The way I look at this is, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to apologise for this pun, but it's when we look at the sperm whale, we hunted that poor mammal almost into extinction. And then we realised, hey, we're, we're overdoing this and we put a moratorium on it and awareness increased. And now its populations are surging again. Mm-hmm. So in the same way, I think that we now were aware of all these Parameters that can impact and explain why male fertility is declining. And with that information, you can turn it around. So I'm actually with you. I'm not a naysayer when it comes to the situation. I actually think we're in a very positive situation. In fact, I think we've come seen it crash, and I think we're going to see a pickup. We're learning more. And as you said, Maura, by learning more about the biology, you can actually take that information and go, oh my goodness, we can do this. It's not all doom and gloom. And sperm are not going to become extinct. We're going to be like a sperm whale, we're going to say. <laughs> and, um, and and so I think the future, is going to be tough, but I have no doubts uh, we can do it.
1: Professor David Gardner, Head of Reproductive Biology and Assisted Conception Laboratories at the University of Melbourne. You also heard from Dr. Deirdre Matiski, Research Fellow in the School of Biosciences. Professor Moira O'Brien, Dean of the Faculty of Science, and Sarah Robertson, Professor of Reproductive Immunology at the University of Adelaide. That's it for this Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.